guys can uh, have a seat. Uh, thank you guys for being here this morning. Uh, welcome to Lathe. I see a few new faces. Uh, my name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, appreciate you guys uh, being here this morning. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn over to Romans chapter 7. Um, that's where we're going to be this morning. Uh, one of the things I wanted to kind of um, make aware to the students, uh, this wasn't something that was announced earlier, uh, but I wanted to kind of let you guys know. Uh, we actually go out and do evangelism on campus every Thursday at around noon. Uh, we meet at the Baptist campus ministry building. If you want to grab lunch, there's lunch there for $4 beforehand, and then we go out on campus immediately afterwards. If you've never done that before, um, we'll train you, and we'll send you with some people that know what they're doing. Uh, but we meet uh, at the VCM, which is directly across the street from uh, Library West, or was that Marston? Is that the actual name of the library? No? Library West is the name of it? Okay, there you go. Don't listen to me. I've only lived in this town for five years now, and have been on that campus for countless hours. Uh, still don't know. You know what was, all right, I'm going to tell you guys a story. Um, we were on campus doing evangelism during the first week of school two years ago, and we were walking around, and some freshman stopped me and Jason Myers. He was a guy who moved down here to help us start the church, and she's like, uh, can you tell me where the chemistry building is? And we're like, we have no idea, but listen. And so we just started, stop, so we just started stopping people and we brought them in and we're like, hey, do you know where the chemistry building is? And they're like, oh yeah. I was like, so we pulled out our map. I was like, I was like, cool. So let me tell you guys about Alathian about Jesus, right? And these these two poor kids had to sit there and, and, and listen to us for the for the next 45 minutes talk about God and kind of they, they shared their story with us. But it was a really great opportunity. People will talk to you. They really will. Um, you know, as as we tell people frequently, and, you know, I was like, what do you like no one goes up and talks to anybody? You can't do that. How are you gonna do intentional evangelism? Here is the key. If you want to make friends or meet a new person, okay, eyes on me, this is how you do it, okay. Philippians chapter 2 gives you all you need to know on how to make new relationships and meet people, right. And Paul says, having this mindset of the same of Christ Jesus, be unified in spirit, right, esteeming others as more important than yourselves and putting their interests above your own. So the way you make new friends, the way you meet people, the way you get to know someone you don't know is you treat them as more important than yourselves. And that means you introduce everyone's favorite topic of discussion, themselves. Right? More than Gator football, more than their major, right? More than everyone's favorite topic is themselves. And so just ask them questions, get to know them. And it's amazing. I've had people, guys, where I met them on campus and 15 minutes later, they were sharing with me their experience in the foster care system and crying in front of me. And of course, I'm a guy, so I'm like, what do I do? These two girls are crying right in front of me. What do we do? By the way, Josh, it was your brother who was with me. So if you don't believe me, you can give him a call later. He'll tell you. Because afterwards, he was like, oh, you were telling the truth. People really will talk about things. Yes, they will. And they, and they want to talk to you. They want to talk about God. So anyway, uh, Thursdays at 12 o'clock, we meet at the BCM, we'll go out and come grab lunch if you want to, and then we'll head out and we'll, we'll give you guys some training. We'll post some more on the Facebook page too if you're, if you're interested, but we'd love to see you guys there. So, all right, Romans chapter 7. Uh, we finished up, we've, we've been in Romans chapter 6 the last two weeks. Uh, anybody that's been here over the last couple weeks kind of feel um, like you've been getting beat over the head by the text the last couple weeks, like God's like really just... <laughs> right, like he's digging on like a deeper level, really trying to get you to think and process through um, some things. And Romans 6 is one of those passages that, that I think confronts us on a heart level, that if we take the scripture seriously and, and take the word of God seriously, that we get confronted 
with the reality of who we are and who God is, and we have to do something with it. We, we're, we're forced to, to, to process and, and, and think through it. And so, you know, it, it, as you look at Romans 6, really what Paul is doing in that passage is he's, he's answering objections about things that he had said in Romans chapter 5, right? And back in Romans chapter 5, he had said, okay, I'm, I'm going to break it down to you kind of how we view uh, the gospel and how God works in our lives. But before Christ came, we were in Adam and, and his one trespass sentenced us to all to death and therefore condemnation. But because of Christ, the free gift has come and we're extended eternal life and justification. That's mean means to be declared not guilty before God. And so this is kind of what he, he's laid out as this thesis statement of what God is doing. And, and he anticipates some, some rebuttal to that because what happens is, is, is people see that and they say, okay, you're telling me that because of Jesus, I'm free from the law, I'm free from sin, I'm no longer in Adam, and that based upon no work of my own but the work of Christ, God declares me not guilty and adopts me as his son. Okay, I'm with you, but if that's the case then, um, can't I just go on living however I want and allow grace to seem all the more amazing? Or can I go on sinning because the law has no authority over me any longer? Those are the questions that are going to naturally arise from that doctrine in someone who doesn't really understand the gospel. And Paul says, by no means are you to think that way about what Christ has done. And so the last few weeks can be summed up as us, you know, as, as, as followers of God, if you're a Christian in here this morning, as followers of God, asking ourselves this question, how do we live the way God intends us to live in light of the cross? Does the cross demand something of us? Does it encourage us to live a certain way? Should it move us in a certain amount of action? Can we live however we want using grace as the free gift to do whatever we want? Or is sin still a big deal and something we need to be serious about? And I imagine most of us in here, especially if you are a Christian, have left here the, uh, the last couple of weeks probably feeling one of two ways. You've either been super convicted and then you resolve to live in obedience, or you've thrown your hands up in the air and you said, I can't possibly live by the standard God has set before me, and so I'm going to give up. And I want to encourage you this morning that if, if you've left feeling one of those two ways, I think you've probably missed the point of what Paul has been trying to say over the last couple of weeks. That yes, he is trying to encourage us towards obedience and joy, but not because we earned God's favor in that, but because we already have God's favor, we can enjoy him. And the most joyful life that we will live is one of obedience to him. I, I mentioned last week that if God really created the universe, it stands to reason that he probably knows the best way to operate within it. And therefore... His laws and his commands are not burdensome, but actually life-giving. Because they save us from ourselves, and they will cause in us to see a greater picture of who God is and what he's done for us. And so, you know, the reality is this, right? If, if you've been in here and, and you know, you've been walking through that like, you know, oh, I, I need to live more for God or I need to know what to do so that I might honor God more in obedience or whatever, and you've been wrestling with this. I think most of us, when we start taking our sins seriously, which Romans 6 kind of tends to make us do, we tend to dig in our heels and say, okay, 
I know I can do this. I know I can live in light of what Romans 6 says to be true about me, and I can live an obedient life. Here's what I'm going to do. If I just study my Bible more and pray and resolve to do these things, I think I can do this. As if you have the power in some way to change yourself. Um, you just need more info. Right? Most of us think if we read our Bible more and we gather more information that that's going to make us the Christian that God intends us to be. And, and what happens is, is that as I've seen over the years, Christians walk through this process of sanctification and what God does is we end up creating, even within the church, because sometimes this is the advice we give people, we end up cr creating a bunch of really scholarly sinners. People that know a lot of the Bible but don't necessarily apply that knowledge to their life. Right? They are full of knowledge, but they lack wisdom. They're full of information, but they're really slow to actually apply that information to their life. And, and I, would, I would start by saying this, sanctification is not a one-person project. And so most of the time, as someone reads through Romans chapter 6, and they start becoming convicted by what God says in His Word there, and they resolve to kind of respond, they want to do it on their own. But if we process through what God has been saying to us in the book of Romans up until this point, you're not at the center of anything God promises to do. Right? The work of God to save you is done by Christ and the Father's perfect plan. The work of the Holy Spirit draws you to the Father and then continues to sanctify and keep you until the day of glory. And then we're relying in the future on Christ's return so that we might experience future jo uh, joy and glory. The reality is that all those things that, we just, that I just said, you are not in the centerpiece of anything going on there other than God chose you. And that God is working salvation out inside of you. And so allowing then for yourself to be used by God and responding to Him, placing yourself in, in community for accountability, growth, and encouragement is going to be tantamount in this process of sanctification. Now, I know this is hard because we want to do it on our own. That's just like, that's who we are, right? As Westerners, right, that's, it's in our DNA. Like, I can do this, right? I, I know, I know I can process through this, right? Like, let me give you an example, okay? Because I just know this is like in our DNA. Especially dudes, like dudes especially, we struggle with this big time, right? Like a couple years ago, Jackie and I bought Gideon a basketball hoop. And it's one of those things, like anything you buy from a cheap place, you have to put it together on your own. And, you know, it's, it's almost worth paying somebody to put it together because it's usually a miserable experience like, you know, uh, Ikea furniture or whatever else. And, you know, I mean, this is just what I do. I, I don't read the instructions most of the time. You know, I might look at the picture and think, I can, I can figure this out from looking at the picture. This is probably how this happens. But I remember, you know, pulling that box open um, with the, the basketball hoop in it, and, like, the directions basically, like, flew out and hit me in the face. I was like, okay, like, maybe I should actually read these. So I opened them up, and one of the first things that the instructions said requires two people to assemble. Like, <laughs> Maybe for most people. But the engineers that wrote this instruction booklet do not know me. And so, so I'm like working through and I'm putting this thing together and Jackie's inside with the kids. And I get to about step seven. And it's at this point that I realize the seven foot pole that I have in my hand needs to be held in place while someone else actually puts the thing together. And I'm like, all right, how am I going to do this? Because I'm 5'6 with shoes on. And this is probably not going to work really well. So I pull over some cinder blocks and I, 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 I pull the ladder over and I shove the pole through the ladder 
right, to kind of hold it for me, and I start trying to put this thing together. Now, here's the problem. The moment I started, like, beating this um, backboard into the top of the pole, I started knocking the pole out of the ladder so that the ladder wouldn't hold it up anymore. So I, I do this for about 45 minutes, and finally I admit defeat. And I call Brian. I'm like, Brian, will you come over and help me put this, you know, basketball hoop together? I'm, I'm struggling. It took us, I'm not joking, less than 10 minutes together. So I wasted somewhere between 45 minutes and an hour trying to do it myself. Brian comes along. We follow the directions. Boom. The thing's together. And here's the thing, right? The, the natural kind of inclination in my heart is I can do this on my own. I, I can make it through there. But the reality is what Paul has been telling us over the last couple of weeks is that you can't do it on your own. As a matter of fact, you need God in all of it. And you need to Him to be the catalyst for all of it. And the two groups he's been addressing over, over the course of Romans 6 are the same two groups he's been addressing the entire book of Romans, the Greeks and the Jews. And to the Greeks he's been saying, okay, in Christ, here is what God has accomplished for you. You are now dead to sin, right? And we saw in the first half of Romans chapter 6, he was trying to explain to them, sin has no power over you any longer. You're free from it. You can choose to honor God and live a life of faithful obedience to Him, not needing to live in sin any longer because God has set you free from that. And He knew that His Greek audience was going to be struggling with that. This idea of, hey, I, I don't have to give in to my temptations any longer, that God has set me free to live unto Him, and therefore I'm free to live a life of joyful obedience. And so that's kind of what he was focusing in on the Greeks. But last week, we saw he shifted, and he said that you're no longer under the law. Guess who he's talking to? He's talking to the Jews. Or as I've often used as an example here, right, the, the cultural Christianity religious South that most of us know exactly what I'm talking about because most of you guys grew up in the South. Right, and what he says to the Jews, they struggle to realize that they're no longer under the law but dead to the law. And what he's trying to do is say, look, the gospel frees you to Jesus, not back to the law. The gospel frees you to obey God but not be enslaved to him. And he's going to share some examples of what that looks like and what it means to truly grow in Christ. So here's what I want to do. I want to read Romans 6, 15 for you because this passage in Romans 7 is a continuation of that same question he raised last week in the second half of Romans chapter 6. So look at verse 15 with me. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means, right? And so he anticipates the Jews saying, okay, well, what's the purpose of the law then? Are we just supposed to sin however we want because we're not under the law anymore? And he's like, no, you don't understand what I've been telling you about being paid for and bought by the blood of Christ, if that's your question. Absolutely by no means, right? And we saw some of what he said last week, but he's going to use an analogy in our text this morning to describe how as someone who kind of culturally finds themselves stuck in that rut of legalism and obedience to the law, how the gospel frees you and how you can know for sure that you're free. Look at verses 1 through 3. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law. There's how you know his audience is the, the, the religious Jews. That the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law 
to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. So, the struggle here is a little um, different. Right? Instead of being dead to sin now, right, they're struggling with what is the relationship to the, to the law I grew up with. Some of you guys are like, I grew up in the church, you know, I, I know all this scripture, I know the commandments really well. Like what, what then, if you're telling me that it's solely by the work of Christ, what then is my relationship to the law? Because I'm really struggling with this idea of like, how does a Christian, wh- like what's a Christian supposed to look like? How are they supposed to live? Does the law not matter at all? Like, is, is all these rules that my church gave me growing up, like certain things I was supposed to do, right, where I burned my secular CDs and I wore my purity ring and all these different things, right, that the church kind of does for you guys when you're growing up in the church and youth group, where does that fit now in the, the culture of being completely identified and in Christ? Because... Remember this, right, guys? This isn't like, you know, it's like, let's make fun of the Jews because they don't really get it. Think about this, right? The Mosaic Covenant had a specific purpose for God's people. And to ask them, right, to not be observing that in the same way is kind of a big deal. God had rescued the nation of Israel out of Egypt and then given his law to Moses for them. Like, this was an important part of their cultural identity and history. And what they're failing to realize is that the Mosaic Covenant had been given and the law revealed to them to reveal God's holiness and their sinfulness not to save them. And so, the law was never designed to save the Jews, but the Jews viewed it in that way. And therefore, dying to the law is hard for them on a practical level. Right? Remember back when we were going through the book of Galatians, one of the things I was trying to consistently point out to us is, why does the law exist? Right? What is the purpose of it in the first place? And the analogy I was frequently using was that with my son and his epilepsy. Right? And every time he goes into the hospital, they hook him up to the EEG so they can study his brain waves. And the point of that EEG test is to, to see his brainwave activity and see whether or not he's actually had a seizure. Right? And, and one of the things that, thing, that, that, that EEG does is it'll say, yes, he's had a seizure, or he's continuing to have seizures, or no, he didn't have one. But if the EEG then confirms that he has had a seizure, you don't leave him hooked up to it to start treating them. It doesn't do anything. It's not the purpose of it. It's a diagnostic tool to, to reveal whether something has actually happened or not. The law is the same way. Right, the law of, of Moses is given to us right, so that we might see our sinfulness in light of a holy God, but it's not meant to treat the sinfulness. But the reality is, is there's no amount of information you can know that could change you to be perfectly obedient to God. There's not. It might give you information on how you might want to live, but it will never save you. And Jews had been told over the years through the teaching of rabbis and various priests that following God and submitting to the law and honoring him through the law was how one came to be saved. And so now that they're hearing a new covenant, 
they're really struggling. And Paul's basically saying here, let me prove to you that the law doesn't hold the same power that you think it does. In verse 1 he says, the law is only binding to someone as long as they are alive. That's true of any law, right? The law uh, of uh, our government in the United States is only binding to us for as long as we're alive, right? Uh, Let me give you an example, right? Some of you guys maybe are familiar with a a guy who used to play football here at the University of Florida and then later played for the Patriots. His name was Aaron Hernandez, right? And he ended up being a convicted murderer. And while he was in prison, he appealed his case. And while that case was in appeals and he was waiting to go for an appeal before a judge, he committed suicide. Guess what his legal standing is before the court system? Not guilty. Because he never was tried in court on his appeal. And because he died, he was no longer under the law. Therefore, even in our own system of justice, he is declared not guilty. And, and there's some reasons and thoughts to why maybe he did what he did, right, to free up finances for his wife and his, and his daughter. But the reality is, is that he was no longer held to the law of the state of Connecticut, which is where he was being tried, because he was dead. And, it wor- and, and, and what Paul is saying is, hey, is it works the same way with us, that the law right, reveals our sinfulness to us and declares us guilty, but once you're dead, you're no longer under the law any, anymore. And he's like, let me give you another example to this, right, marriage, right, and he says, you need to understand that the freedom the gospel brings is all-encompassing in every area of life, kind of the way marriage is, right, that once you're married, it, it becomes a part of every area of your life. If, you, if you're here this morning, you're like, ah, oh, I really want to get married, let me, let me tell you something. Your living situation becomes our living situation when you're married. Okay, so dudes, your unwashed bathtub becomes our unwashed bathtub. It's got to be clean. Just telling you right now, right? Your finances become our finances. Right? My, my frequency of trips to Taco Bell decreased drastically once I got married because my finances became our finances, right? Your free time becomes our free time, right? And marriage leads to, in a lot of ways, a loss of freedom and independence, but it also brings with it the experience of mutual love, acceptance, and security. And what Paul is saying is, is, hey, okay, you need to understand that what God has done for us in Christ is like a marriage, where you go from this independence and being really in, in many ways enslaved and married to the law to being married to God in Christ. And that you are free, but you are freed to God, not from everything. Right? In the same way that when you get married, you are freed from independence to interdependence with one another to relationship with one another, that God moves you in that way, and that there are legal sides to marriage as well. Like, how many of you guys have ever been to a wedding and heard the, mar- the marriage vows? Like 90% of the room, right? And in those, in those marital vows, right, usually the, the, the groom and the bride exchange some words, and one of the things they say, right, is they promise to love one another until what? Death do us part, right? That they are saying, I am committing to you through thick or thin, through poor finances, through poor health, through all these things, until death separates us. 
until one of us dies, I'm committing to being there with you until the end. And Paul is saying, legally, you are obligated in marriage to that person until, until death. And if you wait to enter into a new relationship after your spouse has died, then legally you're free, that it's not adultery. But if you do so beforehand, you've committed adultery. And what Paul is saying here is your marriage to the, to the law works the same way. And here's what he means by that. In Christ, you died with him. Positionally, you died with him. And when you died, you died to the power and the legal ramifications of the Old Testament law. And instead, you are now under the obligation of being in Christ. Therefore, that comes with obedience to him and enjoying him. Freed from self-righteousness, freed from a pursuit of following the law perfectly to being married to the one who followed the law perfectly for you and freed you. So that's his example. He's like, look, okay, guys, I know you love the law, but I'm telling you right now, right, as, as nice as singleness is, marriage is better. As nice as following the law might seem to be, union with Christ is better. That Jesus is the better way because it's actually possible. I tell people this all the time, right? I, you know, I mentioned all those things. Your, your time becomes our time, right? My finances became our finances. My life became 10 times busier when I got married and 30 times more productive. Because what happened is, is God started carving out a lot of the selfishness and a lot of the waste and started zeroing in on what really matters. You, you notice this in a lot of people that there's a lot of really immature people out there when they get married, all of a sudden, like, maturity just kind of starts welling up pretty quickly. You're forced to. You're forced to in that situation. And the tough years of marriage are usually the first two because you're trying to figure out, hey, this isn't about me anymore, it's about us. And it's the same way with God. This isn't about me anymore. It's about how I can live for Him and advance His kingdom because I'm a part of this kingdom now because I'm in His family. And when He gets to verse 4, He's going to give us some more examples with this illustration. Look at this with me. There's a ton of similarities here, by the way, with Romans chapter 6, verses 19 through 22. I'm not going to read that for you, but what we saw last week and how we're dead to the law, this, this imagery that He uses of marriage follows in many ways with that. Look at what He says in verse 4, though. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. And he's like, look, you died to the law in Christ. That is positionally true of you. And through your death with Christ, which we covered in previous weeks, so if you don't have any idea what I'm talking about, go back and listen to one of those podcasts. But you were free and now belong to another. You're like a remarried widow. You've, you've now married into God's family and you are now under Christ. And guess what? You can bear fruit. Like I said earlier, I became way more productive when I got married. Same will be true of a Christian. Your life will be full of more joy, more obedience, more action that actually brings value. Because you are living unto God and not unto yourself. You will actually be able to be godly. Right? Think about... Genesis chapter 2 and the design God made for, for male and female. 
Right? He places Adam and Eve in the garden, and then his charge to them is to rule and have dominion and authority over all that God created. That's his, that's his charge. And to rule it the way that God would rule it. And because of sin, because of the sin of Adam and Eve, right, you and I have not been able to do that. We've been completely unable to have dominion and authority over creation in a way that brings glory and honor to God until Christ. And because of what Christ has done, he is renewing and restoring all things to himself. He's reconciling all things, the 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says. And in that, you and I are actually able to, for the first time, fulfill the design that God created for us. That we're actually able to honor him and know him and display his glory to those around us because of the gospel. And as we bear this fruit, we declare the glories of who Christ is. Now, in verse 5, look at what he says. He says this, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. So he's just said, because of the gospel, you're able to bear fruit and godliness. Before you knew God, here's the truth. You were in the flesh. Now, you, you guys, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you in on a little secret. We're going to see that term a lot over the next couple of weeks as we continue to work through Romans chapter 7 and into Romans chapter 8. We're going to see that term, in the flesh. And, and basically, here's what Paul means by that. He's not talking about, like, just your body. What he's actually talking about is your worldview before God saves you. To where you're trying to do everything on your own and trying to do it your own way. And so if I were to kind of retranslate this, right, I would say this, right, for while we were still trying to do things on our own and make it on our own, on our own path underneath the, 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 the works of the law, our sinful passions were actually aroused by the law. And what he means by that is there's something innate in the sinfulness of human beings that if we get told don't do something, we try to do it anyway. We're actually more tempted to do it. If you don't believe me, I've got two kids I would love you to watch for an evening. And I will give you a list of rules and things that they're allowed to do and they're not allowed to do, and you just watch them. There are times where I choose not to tell Josiah not to do something because I know he's more likely to do it if I tell him not to than if I just wait and see what he does in a particular situation. Right? That human beings innately, if you tell them not to do something, they struggle to want to take that command. That the more someone presses into you the sinfulness of something or the need to be obedient, the more you often push back. And what Paul's saying is what you think the law is meant to do, which is actually point you to godliness, actually does the opposite. Your desire to pursue the law actually ends up pressing you further away from godliness. Your desire to follow the law fully apart from God and Christ actually pushes you further away from him instead of towards him. That seems counterintuitive, right? It's like, wait a minute, you, like, you know, I, I, you know, one of the things I frequently say, you know, if we understand that walking with the Lord is relational. We need to think of term in, in terms of responding to him relationally. You know, frequently when I see people in conflict, especially in marriage, usually what's happening 
is there's conflict and then one person's trying to dictate how the relationship goes forward or what, re what restoration looks like or how, how they can move forward together as husband and wife. And so like the way this might work for Jackie and I is like I sin against Jackie, right? And then I go to Jackie and I tell her, okay, I know you're upset, but here's why you're wrong. And here's what we're going to do moving forward, okay? And, um, you know, we're going to do this, 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 and this. And through that entire process, never once have I asked Jackie to enter into, right, the conversation. To enter into how the relationship moves forward. Right? I've been self-righteous and self-centered and I'm completely focused on me and I might even actually realize the issues within the conflict, but I'm not seeking reconciliation together. And many of us do the same thing with God. Oh God, I've sinned against you. Okay, let me look at your law and I'm going to sit down and I'm going to do these ten things and I'm going to be the best Christian I could possibly be and I'm going to read my Bible and I'm going to serve in this particular ministry and I'm going to go out and do evangelism here and I'm going to pray three times a day and I'm going to send a Siri on my phone to tell me to do it and I'm going to do all these different things. God, that's how I'm going to relate with you. That's how I'm going to restore fellowship with you. I'm going to perform and earn your favor back. I'm going to win back your love. And God says, you can't win my love back. But my son did for you. That's the gospel. That so many of us want to run to our own performance and dictate the terms of how this happens. And the reality is this. You sinned against God, he dictates them, not you. And he has said, by his grace, that all we do is repent and believe in Christ. And in him is all the things that pertain to life and godliness. And that for the first time, not only are you released from the law, but in being released from the law, we're actually free to obey him for the first time. That in, in doing all those things that you want to do in the law, right, listing out the, the, the religious rites and rules, you can actually do them from a posture of worship instead of a posture of trying to puff yourself up and improve your resume. Because let's be honest, most of the time when we sit down to resolve to live for God, most of the time what we're doing is not actually seeking the glory of God, but seeking our own glory. Not seeking to make God look great, but make ourselves look great. And Paul's saying, in Christ, you've been freed from that. You've been freed from the, the need to obey every single word perfectly all the time. Simply rest in Christ. You're now released, right? He says in, he says in verse 6, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. You're free. You spent your whole life trying to earn God's favor. You're free from that now. It's already been given to you. And you can't earn more of it because God has mercifully lavished it on you in Christ. And so I see Paul really trying to drive some major points home to us through Romans chapter 6 and into, and into chapter 7. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to attempt to recap them and, and hopefully we'll 
will hold to this as well. That just as the Greeks must learn that they are dead to sin, we must remind ourselves that we are also free to live obediently. Like you, you like there are many people that come to me who are stuck in a pattern of habitual sin and they want me to give them a list of things to do to get out of it. And guess what my advice is, always is? God's already freed you from that. Live that way. Right? I preach the gospel to them instead of giving them a list of things to do. Because I'm not interested in binding them up with the law. I'm interested in reminding them of who they are in Christ. You are free not to sin if you are in Christ. God's actually set you free. That's who you are. It is an actual truth of what God has done. Now, just like the Jews must learn that they are dead to the law and free from the idol of performance, so a lot of us need that as well. You know, many of us grow up in the church, or maybe we didn't even grow up in the church, but then once we started reading the scriptures and we realized the depth of our own sinfulness, somewhere along the way, we lost sight of what it meant to follow after God. And instead of following after him and wanting to submit to him and joyfully worship him, we started reducing following God down to a list of rules and things that we could do. And Paul's reminder to the Jews and to us even today is you are under a new covenant. All right, go with me to Ezekiel chapter 36. I'm going to read what the prophet says there. Starting in verse 26. He's talking about what God is going to do through the Messiah to the nation of Israel. And look at what he says. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you, give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You notice the language there? All of that is passive. That God is going to do that to you and it's not about your performance in light of the law it's about God moving in you and giving you a heart of flesh giving you the spirit so that you might walk in his statutes and in obedience that God has freed you to enjoy him not living in fearful begrudging obedience but in living in joyful worship and trusting that his commands are for your good and for his glory let me, let me give you an example. Let me use the, the marriage analogy again since Paul has used that. How many of you guys are dating, have dated, or might date again in the future? Most of you guys in the room, I would imagine, right? Okay. What, what, what is dating all about? What are you typically trying to do in that? You know, I hate dating, and here's why. It's so fake. It's so fake. You get, most of the time, the best of the woman or the best of the guy because they're trying to impress you right especially the first couple dates you ever notice how like people will like be together for like a month and it's like wait a minute he sucks like I like we we went on these really great dates and then I went over to his house and like I, I saw him hang out with his guy friends and they're all like five Or the guy's like, oh, she's really great. Like, she's got this great personality. And then, you know, ladies, sorry to bag on you, but you have your, like, one emotional breakdown in front of him. And he's like, whoa. What are emotions? How do we, where do we go forward here, right? That in dating, right, everyone kind of sees the best of everybody and kind of moves forward in that, typically. And, and then, 
typically what happens too, you, sometimes we even fake it all the way through the engagement process. And then we get married, <laughs> and typically, right, especially the guy's like, all right, got her to say yes. I can go back to doing what I was doing. And then she's like, wait a minute, what happened to the guy I was dating? What happened to the guy that was like buying me roses and like sending me really sweet texts? Now he smells and showers once a week and, you know, doesn't want to help with the dishes and is not really that fun to be around and is emotionally unavailable. And as you start working through that in marriage, you start realizing, okay, wait a minute. <laughs> Maybe I didn't know this person as well as I did or as well as I thought I did. But we can work through this because the covenant we have made with one another in marriage is that we're going to figure this thing out and it might be hard sometimes. A lot of guys, like I, I didn't need to go to seminary to give a lot of marital advice. Right? Sometimes if we're sitting down for marital counseling, Jackie and I are, Jackie can confirm this to you. If you're sitting down like, ah, like we need to talk to Kevin or we're struggling in our marriage and you sit down and you tell me all the things that are going on and here's usually my advice. I'm sorry, it sucks, keep going. Keep fighting. Because that's what marriage is all about. Because here's the reality, God doesn't stop fighting for you. Christ doesn't take back what he did on the cross and his death, burial, and resurrection when you stop performing. Christ doesn't look at you and say, well, you were kind of worthy of my love and my death, but now... Yeah, you know, just the way you talked to your mom that time, that was it. That was the tipping point. Right, the way you treated your roommate in that fight, ugh, that was it. Sorry. Right, that's not how the gospel works. And marriage is a reflection of the gospel. That you stick it out with the other person through all of it. And here's the one thing I can promise you. As you walk through the low lows of marriage and come through the other side of them through repentance and love towards one another, man, marriage looks great. So it's, it's when it's raw and hard and then reconciliation occurs, that's... That's the beauty of marriage. The beauty of marriage is not the cute white dress with people dancing to YMCA and the electric slide or whatever else. I've been to so many weddings, guys. You know, I love you guys. If I do your wedding, I probably won't hang around for your reception. Sorry. If I have to do the cha-cha slide one more time, I'm going to lose my mind. I'm not saying don't do that. I just won't be doing it with you. But that's, that's not marriage. Right, that's the beginning of a marathon. Just like accepting Christ is the beginning of a marathon, an eternal marathon with him. Where you constantly are going to him, repenting of sin and receiving the free grace that he bestows upon you. So in marriage, you go to one another repenting of your sin and allowing your partner to forgive you. As you move forward in love and you fight for that enjoyment you see that commitment to one another, even at your worst, and marriage looks all the more amazing. 
here's the reality, right? Because some of you guys are like, well, married, you're telling me that if I get married, like, my, my fiancé is going to suck maybe at times? Yes. Yes. I'm telling you that right now. If you don't believe me, Jackie would be happy to tell you all of my problems. But marriage is better than dating. It is. So here's the reality, right? Dating is always harder because in the end there's no commitment. So there's always that fear that I'm opening up, I'm sharing, I'm giving. I'm, 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 I'm giving love to someone who's never going to give anything back. In marriage, even when it's hard, you've covenanted with one another that you're going to give and there's going to be that same love given in return. Jackie and I have faced some high highs and some low lows and fighting for our marriage has strengthened it and the beauty of it is amazing. I love Jackie now more than I ever have and I probably will love her more tomorrow than I'll ever today. Paul is saying the same thing to us in, in our relationship with the Lord. That if you continue to walk and submit yourself to the law, you're, it's as if you're wanting to date God. You to take the analogy a step further. And Paul's like, look, dating God is not as good as actually being in him, being married to him, being in Christ. If you want to live underneath the law, you can live your life trying to impress him. Here's the reality. Jesus impressed God already for you. I love how at the baptism of Jesus, right, the Holy Spirit descends upon Christ. And what does the Father say? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. All Paul is asking us to do as we read this is to enjoy Jesus. Know what he has already done for you and enjoy him. And out of that enjoyment, worship and obey. Not trying to earn his favor, but enjoying his favor that has already been given. If you know the depth and the magnitude of what Christ has done, believing upon the power of his grace, you get to enjoy him, you get to grow in trust, you get to grow in love, you get to grow in obedience, and in that, that is a life worth living and a relationship worth having. No offense, Jackie, I love you. I, don't, I didn't want to date you my whole life. I'm darn sure glad I married you. So here's my encouragement to us this morning. As we take communion here in just a moment, right, if you're a Christian here this morning, I would invite you to just sit and quietly reflect. Where am I trying to earn God's favor based upon my own merit? Am I submitting to the law? Or have I completely thrown my hands up and I'm living my life and therefore cheapening the value of what Christ did on the cross for me? Do some honest reflection. And I would invite you then to see that sin in your life. Repent of it. God, I'm sorry. This is not what you've promised me. I've been robbing myself of joy and pursuing after these things but thank you for Jesus. And then come up here and take communion. And in taking communion, what you're doing is saying, I have been forgiven and bought by the, the, the flesh and the blood of Christ, the body and the blood of Christ. And in taking communion, you're not, you know, 
working through some act of contrition where you're trying to earn God's favor, but what you're actually doing is worshiping. Like, Jesus really did do this for me. Thank you, Jesus. And then go back to your seat, pray, and worship him. Because he is the better way. He's far better than your obedience to the law, and he's far better than you taking advantage of his grace. That you might enjoy him. If you're not a follower of Jesus here this morning, your opportunity now is to submit. I can promise you this. You will continue for the rest of your life if you run from God to rob yourself of joy. And I know that from personal experience. I know this to be true both because it's in God's word and I've seen it true in my life and countless other people's lives. That true joy is only found in the gospel and in what God has done for us. I pray that you would believe that to be true and know that to be true this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and your, your grace and your love towards us. Thank you that we are dead to sin but alive to you. Thank you that we are dead to the law but alive to the spirit. And that in you, we might know you and experience joyful obedience. Father, convict us of sin. Draw us to repentance. And may we worship you our Heavenly Father, for what you have done for us in your, in your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, thank you so much for the men and women that are here this morning, and may we as a church continue to seek to know and worship you. And I ask this all in Jesus' name.